we are going to build a 60,000-person um, arena in Surrey. All right, that's Surrey Mayor Doug McCallum yesterday on the campaign trail running for re-election. And that big announcement from the Surrey Mayor yesterday to build a 60,000-seat stadium in Surrey. This is Mike Smith, and that's the story we start with today. A 60,000-seat stadium in the city of Surrey. That would be the biggest stadium in the entire country. So we're talking bigger than Olympic Stadium in Montreal, bigger than Rogers Center in Toronto, where the Toronto Blue Jays play. Wow, 60,000 seats. Where did this come from? Where did this idea come from? 60,000-seat stadium. McCallum uh, telling the Vancouver Province newspaper he's talking to the Vancouver Canucks to try and get them to relocate to Surrey to play in a 60,000-seat stadium. Let's discuss this now with my guest this morning, Surrey City Councilor Brenda Locke. She is running against McCallum for mayor this fall. I'm very pleased to welcome her back. Councilor, thank you for coming on. Thank you for having me, Mike. Okay, Councillor, a 60,000-seat stadium in Surrey. What, what went through your mind when you heard this yesterday? I mean, initially I was flabbergasted, and I think some of his uh, colleagues were too because the look on their face was a little bit stunning. But, uh, you know, Doug says he was talking to the Canucks and the BC Lions. You know, maybe he should have talked to Surrey residents first. Surrey taxpayers and families have a lot to say about infrastructure in our city, and... Uh, this one has never come up. Yeah, has this uh, okay? That you anticipated my next question. Have you been briefed on this, or is, uh, have other members of council were, were they told about this at all? Uh, no, we have never been briefed on it, and uh, I could tell by the look on the face of the staff that were there, this has never even come across their desk. So, um, you know, Doug wants to uh, build a six. 60,000 seat white elephant for millionaire athletes when our own kids are needing facilities right now in Surrey? Unacceptable. We need arenas, we need sports fields and libraries. Surrey is so underserved when it comes to facilities for kids. Our families are heading to other cities for facilities and infrastructure. This is outrageous. Yeah, when you talk about a 60,000-seat stadium, this would be the largest stadium of its kind in the entire country. You're talking about a price tag potentially in the billions. I mean, it could cost yeah. it could cost up to $2 billion to spend something like to build something like this according to some of the estimates that are coming out this morning. Your th- what are your thoughts on that? Well, exactly. And then the question to him was, has he talked to uh any partners or the federal or the provincial government? And, of course, he said no. He said Surrey was going to build it ourselves. Honestly, I don't... There is no hope that Surrey can build something of that magnitude ourselves. I don't know how many embarrassing boondoggles uh, this mayor has to put Surrey through. We're, We're really done with this. If it isn't his criminal charges, his challenging Uber in the courts, and never forget his canal idea. He comes up with this stuff, and uh, it's nothing but a price tag to residents and taxpayers. Yeah, speaking of the canal idea, which came out a couple of years ago, it was sort of reminiscent of this 60,000-seat stadium (laughs) idea that comes out of the blue. Let's go back to 2019 when the mayor proposed this 
canal thing to turn Surrey into the, the Venice of North America here with the canal system. Here is the mayor on that idea from a couple of years back. Let's have a listen. I think as our city is growing, we, we need to look at things that are outside the box sometimes. Canal, people can walk alongside, they can have um, food, there's restaurants on the side of it. I've asked staff to start to look at uh, whether we could maybe use um, roads that are not being used that much right now, um, because that would provide the land to do it. Yeah, he was going to dig up some roads in the city of Surrey and, and dig a, a canal instead and actually said he had instructed Surrey city staff to start researching that. Whatever happened to that one? Well, I think um, I think probably staff uh, rightfully convinced them it was not a good idea, but I'd like to, him to point out the road that isn't being used in our city. Congestion in the city is is really a challenge, and transportation networks are important. We're not digging up any roads to uh, put in a canal so he can pretend he's um, a sailor man, I guess. I, I'm not <laughs> sure what that's all about, but it's, it's okay. kind of crazy. Well, well a 60,000-seat stadium sort of leaves that one in the dust. I mean, I think the canal kind of pales in comparison to this idea, the sca- the scale of it. What would you say, you've already touched a bit on this already, Councillor, but what what are the realistic needs and priorities for this city right now? Let's forget about some sort of fantasy stadium that I think everyone knows is not going to be built. What does the city actually need to get done right now? You know, and everybody will tell you about the growth, Mike, and you, I'm sure you know it, everybody in Metro knows the growth in Surrey is, uh, is re- really quite extraordinary. We need services for families. We are really a city of families. We need sports fields. We need our roads improved. We need a performing arts centre. We don't have anything like that. But from my perspective, we have some great lands in Cloverdale. We have to start looking at convention facilities and that kind of thing. Not yeah. This, is, this is, a, is just a, a silly notion that came into his head as many do. Councillor, thank you for coming on this morning. Thanks, Mike. About Surrey Mayor Doug McCallum's promised 60,000-seat stadium in the city of Surrey, 604-280-9898 is the number to call. Star 9898, toll-free on your cell. Let's check in with Rob Williams, sports editor at the Daily Hive. Hey, Rob. Hey, Mike. This is uh, (laughs) quite a promise. Okay, this is really something. Rob, you've got your finger on the pulse of the sports scene here in, in Vancouver. What are you hearing about this? What are your people telling you? <laughs> I mean, it's a total <laughs> joke. I, it's, I, I'm not treating it with uh, much seriousness. Uh, uh, Doug McCallum, is, is, uh, <laughs> you know, he's, he, he came out and essentially said that they were, you know, going to build a brand new stadium, which already is, you know, a huge undertaking. But then he said it was going to be for all sports, yeah. uh, 60,000 seats. He's talking about hockey teams and, and football teams and like, and just like every sport, which there's no, like, there's no arena. And he used the word arena uh, yeah. to describe this. Um, like th- these are two, di- that would be two different things. Like you need like a small, you know, a, a, a stadium the size of Rogers arena to have, host a, a hockey team. Whereas, um, you know, if you, you're hosting football and, and uh, soccer, you'd need something, you know, closer to, 
to a BC place. But even in terms of the 60,000 seats, I mean, the big problem with BC places is it's too big. And that it's 54,500 uh, 54, is, is the capacity of BC place. That's too big for the Lions and Whitecaps. So I don't know what team he's planning to, to put in, yeah, I mean, in, uh, in this stadium, but it would, it would make it the largest uh, stadium by capacity in all of Canada. Yeah, and we can't sell out BC Place for sports right now, like you said. I mean, what does the, the Lions get around, what, 17000 a game? Yeah, I mean, the Lions, you know, I, I think the Lions would, it would be appropriate for them to have, uh, you know, a 30,000-seat stadium, maybe a 25,000-seat stadium, um, and they could build up towards that. Um, yeah. You know, in, in recent years, they're, you know, hovering around the, 20, the 20K mark, right? So, but yeah. they have, in, in the past, they've been closer to 30. So I think that that would be, you know, an appropriate um, uh, number. And, then it, you know, you could, just, you could just tell from his answers to, to any follow-up questions about this that he hasn't put very much thought into it. Um, you know, I reached out to BC Lions. They had not heard of this. So, like, they I, mean, haven't I don't know heard why you build the a stadium. Lions... I don't know. Yeah, I don't know why you build a stadium and not talk to uh, the Lions and Whitecaps uh, first. So I, it's it's weird. I mean, it seems like, you know, clearly, you know, an election coming up, I guess this is an election promise. I don't know yeah. how this would win any votes from anybody. I mean, this would just be, in effect, flushing hundreds of millions of dollars down the toilet. So well, I think it's... A kind of a hail mary pass uh, and, and a distraction too uh, uh, from the the criminal charge that he's he's facing right now. Let's uh, take a few phone calls here, see what people think about it. Blair calling from Cloverdale. Hi, Blair. Go ahead. What do you think? Hey, good morning, Mike. You know, my mayor. I, I think he's unwell. I really do, and I wish that his colleagues, but more than his colleagues, his family would step in. I, every time I see him talk, every time I see him. I just think I don't even I don't I wouldn't vote for him, but I I feel sorry for him. I I think he's not well. Yeah, th- thank you for that. I mean, that has been brought up. I mean, the mayor has had health health issues for sure. We know that, but I also think that maybe he's thinking like I'm trying to get a reelection with a criminal charge hanging over my head. That this is maybe some sort of the biggest distraction I can think of to put in front of the voters, especially when he's got multiple people running against him. Uh, you've got a very splintered field of candidates for mayor, and who knows, he could get back in with like 30% of the vote. Barry in Surrey. Hi, Barry, what do you think? Hi, Mike. Uh, yeah, I think old McCallum's just brilliant. This, uh, he's going to get certified. He's going to plead insanity on his criminal charges and probably get off. Thanks. Okay, thank you for that. It's Jesse in Cloverdale. Hi, Jesse. Go ahead. Hey, Mike. Um, my concern is, does Mayor McCallum think the voters of Surrey are this stupid? Uh, growing up in Cloverdale, we had no pool facility. We have to go to Fleetwood and now Grandview. I, we need at least a pool in Cloverdale. They're neglecting the citizens of Cloverdale, and his concern is building the world's largest stadium. Yeah, thank you. Well, it would not be the world's largest stadium. It would certainly be Canada's largest stadium, as Rob Williams just told me. Rob Williams, sports editor at the at the Daily Hive. I mean, Rob, if you were to try and think of what would be some realistic sports out recreational infrastructure in the city of Surrey, what would be a realistic thing that maybe people like people say, well, we want swimming pools or a skating rink? Yeah, no, I, I mean, I don't, don't know that on the smaller scale, but I, I would say that the 
the thing he should have said if he wanted to a real distraction that didn't get him laughed out of the room, he should have proposed a 30,000 seat stadium and said, we're going to bring uh, the lions to Surrey, which is something yeah. that people have talked about for, for years. You know, the lions, their, their offices is based in Surrey. Many of their fans are out, out that way. That would have been a realistic, um, you know, a plan that, you know, people would have got people talking. Uh, this one just doesn't make any sense. So. Jesse in Cloverdale. Hi, Jesse. Go ahead. Oh, I already spoke to Jesse. Let's go to Rob in Surrey. Hey, Rob. No, we don't have Rob. We got open phone lines. Phone me right now. 604-280-9898 is the number. If you phone right now, you're going to get through. 604-280-9898. Star 9898 on your cell. The mayor said yesterday at one point, Rob, that he had actually spoke, reached out to the Vancouver Canucks to talk to them about picking up stakes and moving to Surrey. Have you heard anything on that score? Uh, yeah, I mean, I heard different things over the years about uh, Surrey being a, a spot for, uh, you know, around a 10,000-seat stadium, perhaps for the Vancouver Giants, perhaps for the Canucks to put their farm team, which is, of course, currently in Abbotsford. So there's been talks of, of that over the years, um, you know, but n- nothing concrete uh, uh, made obviously they haven't broken ground on any stadiums, but um, I, I think that's another one too. Like if he had said like we're going to bring you know we're going to build a ten thousand seat you know arena and we're going to you know lure you know maybe professional basketball or or professional hockey to Surrey, that would have been realistic yeah. as well and a lot cheaper. Right, and don't forget, we've already got BC Place Stadium that underwent a five hundred million dollar renovation just what ten years ago. And I, how how much life does BC Place Stadium have left in it? Oh, lots. I think I think yeah. BC Place is a is a fantastic venue. The problem is it's just too big for what we need for the most part. You know, yeah. But it's also you know it's also great. It, it, um, the flip side of that is it's great to have when. Uh, you know, it, it, when Vancouver hosts a Grey Cup, or of course we've got the we've hosted the Olympics there, and and of course the, the uh, FIFA World Cup is is coming to Vancouver, so it's it's right. great for those those things. When it's full, it's a great stadium. The problem is it's okay. half empty for most of the time. Steve in Vancouver on the open line. Hi, Steve. Go ahead. Oh, hey, Mike. Thanks for having me on. This is sure. this is just ludicrous. I um, does he not understand that uh, all the professional teams have probably long contracts and previous arrangements made with, you know, the, the stadiums that we have here and the, you know, the arenas, as he calls them, uh, are, are quite adequate. Now, there is a piece of land, though, i got to tell you. I've always wondered why it hasn't been proposed. A huge chunk of land in Richmond, and it's mm. around the Alderbridge area, and I think it's in excess of 20 square blocks. Um, if, if there was the opportunity to expand those facilities, uh, there's SkyTrain coming to there, that, that'd be the perfect place to do it. But it's not in Surrey. Steve, thank you very much for the call. Okay, this is a story we're going to continue to follow closely for you. Uh, Rob, thanks a lot for coming on today. Thank you. All right. We had so many phone calls there earlier this morning on Mayor Doug McCallum in Surrey and his promised 60,000-seat stadium yesterday on the campaign trail for re-election as mayor. I encourage you, please give me a call on the buzz line on this one today, okay? Let me know what you think about this idea. 60,000-seat stadium. I mean, you know, think about it like the BC Lions, which right now are having their best season they've had in, in many years, probably one of the best teams in the CFL right now. 
They're only drawing like I think seventeen thousand people a game. Why would you need a sixty thousand seat stadium in the city of Surrey? Call me on the buzz line today, okay? Leave a voicemail, and we may play it later on the show. Six zero four three three one buzz is the number to call. Six zero four three three one. 2899. All right, let's talk about the PNE, and we're big fans of the PNE. I enjoy going there. I've been hearing some complaints and gripes, though, about the ticketing system down there. Uh, the PNE opened last weekend. Let's listen to this, some of the audio there from p- people who showed up on the weekend as the PNE opened its doors. This is from Global News. Have a listen. Pretty excited to have the crowds coming back after a couple of years, right? Yeah. Yeah, awesome. Thank you. Yeah, now that she says that, yeah, it's it's nice that it's all open up and we can just wander around. It's very exciting. I can't wait to see Super Dogs. (laughs) I'm very excited for Mini Donuts. (laughs) I'm bringing my grandson Noah out here, and where the first place we stopped was at Mini Donuts. I'm excited for the roller coasters. I think I've only ever done the wooden one once, so I'm excited. <laughs> the part I'm looking forward to opening day is just seeing everyone back, because, I mean, like, it's been the, the last few years, no one's been able to go to festivals and stuff, and even last year was a little questionable, but uh, I'm just happy seeing everyone here having fun. Okay, but they have capped capacity once again on the fairgrounds, and they've brought in a system for ticketing for the rides that left some people disappointed here at the PNE fairgrounds. Let's check in with Lisa Clement now. Lisa is a mom. We took her family down to the PNE the other day. Hi, Lisa. Thanks for coming on today. Thanks, Mike, for having me. Okay, Lisa, tell me about your experience down at the PNE when you were down there the other day. You know, um, the Peony is a special place to our family, obviously. We go every year. Um, pretty exciting time to, you know, celebrate the end of summer. Um, yeah, we we were told that um, you could buy online ride passes in, in advance, um, which are f- about $50. Um, we have a toddler, so a $50 ride pass, uh, you know, didn't make sense for us to go on one or two little baby rides. So we passed up that opportunity because we were told you could buy um the individual coupon rides to just get on to one or two rides. So right. we ar- arrived early and got in line t- and and went over to the ride ticket booth to pick up some coupon tickets. And even though we were some of the first people in the gates, they were already sold out um, and we had already paid fair admission and we're pretty disappointed. We weren't able to get onto uh, any of the rides. The oh. larger what, what? passes were sold out and, and everything. There were no rides for the whole day and we were only there for about, 45 minutes before everything was sold out. Yeah, what day were you down there? Uh, we were there on opening day on Saturday. Um, yeah. I, it, it was uh, a lot of disappointment and a lot of confu- confusing uh, confusion, and parents weren't quite sure what was going on, and and pretty a lot of heartbroken children. Yeah, so how did you mention you got a toddler, right? Like, how, how old is it? How many kids you got? You got just one kid? I just got one, and he's two yeah. and a half, but he's very aware of what a ride is, and he's <laughs> pretty excited to get on some of the roundabout car rides, and uh, most of them sat actually empty because the toddler rides really aren't that popular in comparison to, you know, the, the famous coaster and, you know, the beast and, and those things. So they were empty, but uh, all ride tickets for the day, very early in the day, were completely sold out. Uh, yeah. We were told the, the big... Real Pass was sold out, um, which didn't bother us because we weren't there for the big rides this time. Um, and they were completely sold out. And the individual coupons were communicated on a loudspeaker uh, while we were in line to get in, that they were still available 
online and in sight, and that's what was communicated on their social media once the larger passes had sold out. Um, but it just wasn't the case. Um, yeah. 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 That's too bad. Did you, did did you hear other parents were also in the same boat as you? There were kids all over the place upset. Um, people had to wait in the ride ticket booth line over toward Playland some for over an hour only to finally get up to booths or, and have them sold out. So they were already waiting in line to get extra tickets and they weren't available. Then they put up the sign saying they had sold out. Uh, there were yeah. lots of parents that were disappointed um, using the alternative to missing the ride pass uh, by getting these coupons so they could, you know, appease their kids and get a couple, get them on a couple rides. But though the alternative was no longer available. You had paid fair admission to get in and there was at 11.45, it opens at 11. All rides were sold out. So you were yeah. out of luck for the whole day. Right. The PNE put out a statement saying that capacity for the fair has been lowered since uh, since the start of the pandemic earlier, and they've kept they've kept it to keep the line shorter. They've kept it to keep line shorter as well. There are new industry safety standards in some of the rides that have uh, limited capacity on the rides too. What do you think of that explanation? Well, I think if they've already lowered the uh, capacity for the for the fair and and limited the capacity for ride passes. Uh, I don't think adding the individual tickets really would uh, deter from that. I think there's still long lines yeah. and two hour lines for the big coaster is p- kind of expected and sort of part of the PE experience. And it always has been, I think eliminating the individual coupons eliminates a lot of, a lot of uh, things for families, people who want to go last minute and just want to get on one or two people like myself who have a small kid who don't need a $50 pass for an all day uh, ride experience, people who go on a date night and just want to do the coaster, you now have to buy a yeah. fair pass, which is, you know, a ride pass for $50 to go on one ride. It, it doesn't really make sense to sell out the individual coupons. It, it yeah. also would have been nice if they communicated that those, that alternative actually could sell out as well. And, and that wasn't communicated. Uh, it made it seem like that was your alternative if you couldn't get an online pass. And then maybe if they could put the individual coupons online, you could just buy one or two, and then you're, you and your kids are set up for the right expectation that you're having one yeah. or two rides today. And it wouldn't cause so much um, tears at the ticket booth because there was a lot of frustrated parents and, and a lot of heartbroken children. Speaking of Lisa Clement, Lisa is a young mom who brought her toddler down to the PNE the other day, had, couldn't get on any, any of the rides. Were you able, Lisa, to enjoy uh, other parts of the fair? Yeah, I mean, I understand everyone goes to the to the fair not just for the rides, and and yeah. we absolutely love the barn and and the food and and all of those fun activities, and we we try to make the most of it. But it is really hard watching the the rides go by, and and the kids are still looking at them and crying and and reaching and trying to get on them. And you know, Ferris wheel we sat, sat lunch at the barbecue pit, and the Ferris wheel uh, by the barbecue pit was empty for over two hours with a ride attendant, and the rides were sold out, and we weren't allowed on it. Uh, and we could have just walked right on. And it's just a disappointment uh, that some rides were running empty and operating and we just couldn't get on. It, it just didn't really, in the moment, didn't like, make a lot of sense. So, yeah, we enjoyed as much as we could. And uh, But rides are part of the PE experience. And yeah. uh, a Ferris wheel and, and a great photo is, you know, you know, part of making a memory with your family. Lisa, thanks for coming on and sharing your story today. I appreciate it a lot. Thanks, Mike. I I hope they uh, organize things a little differently.
All right, let's keep talking about the PNE. You heard my conversation there with Lisa Clement. She's a young mom who brought her toddler down to the PNE on opening day and couldn't get on any of the rides. Let's check in with Laura Balance, spokesperson for the PNE. Hi, Laura. Thanks for coming on. Oh, no problem. Thanks for having me. Hey, hey, Laura, when we were talking, we talked on the show the other day about the opening weekend of the PNE, and you did mention to me that there was uh, some capacity limits still in place at the park, right? Is that is that the issue with the rides here that we've heard about? Well, um, when we had the last two years, and particularly last year, we did have a lower capacity fare. So we had a smaller footprint, lower capacity, and that was incredibly well received. Playlands actually had capacity limits for the last two years um, for full-time park as well as during the fair. And for the most part, it's been very well received. Now, this year we knew as we transitioned back into a more traditional fair, even though we're not still at full capacity, that there was going to be some sensitivity in and around um, capacity limits for the fair. So we've kept, although higher than last year, because the site is uh, is much larger this year than we saw last year, we've continued to keep the capacity, daily capacity limits on the fair side. What you're talking about really isn't the issue. It's the fair, um, the ride passes during the fair. And uh, we have kept those uh, at a certain level. But really, Mike, it's to deal with our number one complaint over the last several years, which is ride lineups. And by far and away, the largest single complaint we get from our guests. So the reality of it is, although it's disappointing, we message very strongly through the entire ticket purchasing process, through our social and on our website, that there is a chance that ride passports may sell out and um, and ride tickets may sell out. But the fact of the matter is, is that we would love to keep selling. The You know, it's no secret that the P&E has expe- experienced some really strong financial hardships over the last couple of years. But the responsible thing to do is not to sell a ticket to something you don't know you have, that you know you don't have the ability to absorb the capacity. So... Our, our complaints about ride uh, lineups have gone to virtually none. The challenge with it is, is that at some point you have to be responsible and cut, cut the amount of tickets being sold, just like a movie theater doesn't sell tickets once they, they've run out of seats. So although we understand that people may be disappointed, the fact is, is when you buy, the, I open up the website, it says right loud and proud there, ride passports and tickets may sell out on wow. the weekend we we told people we sent them emails anybody that bought a fair or fair ticket um got an email saying just so you know ride passports and tickets may sell out then we put it on social we had staff at the end of the line every person that entered the ride lineup saying you may not be able to uh purchase them we're we're selling them but we may run out. We did at about yeah. it was between one and two. So it wasn't right off the top of being uh, open uh, on those days. Yesterday, we didn't sell out of the ride passports. We, we, okay. we had enough. So on the weekends, and certainly as we move into the, the higher capacity days, that, that is a possibility. But I'm not sure what the exact solution is to that when what? we only have so many rides. Right. What would your advice be there for, let's say, if someone's planning to go to the PNE this weekend and they want their kids to get on rides? Like, what would your advice be? 
Yeah. So, I mean, obviously we don't want anybody disappointed. We're a 112 year old not for profit that is part of the fabric of this province. And we, one of the things I say all the time is we're part of the collective memory of this province. We want you to come and have an amazing day. The challenge with it is, is that we do have capacity on that. So if you do not want to buy an all day ride passport uh, in advance and you save a bit of money by doing so, then you're running the risk that you may not get individual ride coupons. We're working on other solutions. We we are every day talk about things we could do better. This is an organization that has decades of being incredibly transparent in saying this is working or this isn't, and this is what we're trying to do to fix it. So yeah. um, if there is a way to, to make it uh, so that, that there isn't disappointment, we'll find it and we've had some some guests reach out with some good ideas our own team is working very very hard to figure out is there any way on the lower capacity rides to to have a system where we can add people in but the fact is is that at some point we can only sell so many tickets and be a responsible corporate citizen Right. So you would advise what buy buy the $50 pass in advance or maybe be there early if you want That's to buy right. individual tickets, I, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and I think that that is the way, and, and if we find a better solution, if there's a way we can tweak our system, we'll do it, and we'll message strongly out on our social, uh, as well as on the website. Uh, we hear, uh, you know, from parents, we, we understand. I'm a mom, I know that, you know, what it's like to disappoint your kids, and we understand uh, that people look forward to this. That's that's why we remain the largest ticketed event in this province is because we get the support. And certainly um, over the last two and a half years, we have felt the love from British Columbia. We don't want to disappoint a single person, uh, but we're also trying to do the right thing, even when the right thing is hard. Right. All right. Welcome back to the show. Let's talk about our healthcare system now and the stresses and strains on it. Is it time to have more private health care options in Canada? There already is a lot of private health care in the country, of course. Check out this new uh, study that found there's a lot of money going to f- private for-profit clinics in British Columbia. This report is called The Rise of Corporate Medicine from the Canadian Centre for Policy Alternatives. It says that in British Columbia, BC Health Authorities paid out $393 million to private for-profit health clinics in British Columbia. Okay, let's discuss now what a great panel we have for you. Andrew Longhurst is a health policy researcher at Simon Fraser University. He was involved in this new study. I'm very pleased to welcome him. Andrew, thank you for coming on. Good morning, Mike. Good morning to you. Also on the line, Dr. Brian Day, founder of the Canby Surgery Centre, past president of the Canadian Medical Association. I'm pleased to welcome him back. Dr. Day, thank you for coming on today. Good morning, Mike. Okay, good morning to both of you. Andrew, let me go to you first. Tell me about your study and your findings here, and was this surprising to you about the amount of money going to private clinics? Yeah, so the research looked at the last six years of public payments. Uh, so these are health authority payments to contracted surgical in, surgical and diagnostic imaging clinics. Uh, so these are for-profit uh, clinics. And uh, what it found is that, that um, those payments for contracted procedures and diagnostic imaging 
has increased 57% over the last uh, six years in the study. Um, and we've seen some really important work, uh, especially on increasing public MRI capacity in the province. And so those numbers are starting to come down. But what we have seen increasing is um, the greater reliance on private surgical facilities uh, that are contracted by health authorities. So using okay. public dollars, um, these are no cost to the patient. But what the report did also uncover is a number of those, uh, at least two clinics, um, have had a history of unlawful extra billing uh, and received um, public contracts with the health authorities. And, and what is what is wrong with that? What is wrong with the, the province spending money on these clinics? Well, what we've seen in the last 20 years here in BC is shown this experience, and we have a lot of uh, research evidence in Canada and internationally, is the main issue is that we're, um, the, the greater reliance on for-profit delivery tends to hollow out our public sector staffing. So it makes it more difficult to staff up our public operating rooms, um, our medical imaging in our hospitals. Um, all of these specialized healthcare professionals can't be in two places at once. Uh, and that's one of the main issues is why, and, and especially right now, uh, with the severe staffing shortages in the public system, uh, it couldn't come at a worse time. Ryan Day, what do you say to that? Well, um, I think that we need to look at the facts, and, and the, the facts uh, don't support what Andrew has, has said. The, he's not a doctor, and he doesn't sit on committees in hospitals where these uh, problems are uh, debated and discussed. But the, the basic, um, on, on the manpower issue, the, it's actually the opposite, that, that nurses and doctors uh, are actually leaving the country and um, having some old uh, nurses are not working in public hospitals because the working environment there has become so so toxic that uh, that uh, Canada, if you look at the OECD data, we actually have more nurses per population than the, than the average in the OECD. Um, but they don't want to work because the work environment is is not conducive to 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 the to a healthy um, work workplace it's it's uh, toxic so and and just in our own clinic and we don't do contract work uh, any longer for the government um, in our own clinic 23 of the doctors that work here would be out of the country if it were not for um, if it were not for our clinic because they couldn't get a job uh, the, the the bottleneck is in the public hospitals you know in our constitutional trial uh, Justice Fenlon, one of the appeal court judges, says it, it's more incommensurate to ask patients to risk irremedial harm and an increased risk of death in order to preserve a public health care system that is actually intentionally underdesigned in order to achieve fiscal sustainability. The, the data shows uh, from BC, oh. from Alberta, and from Ontario that it's cheaper to contract out for the public hospitals. And that, you know, that data is in evidence at our trial. I want to ask both of you about whether there should be more private sector involvement in the system, given the stresses and strains that are on the public system right now. And I think it's a very timely conversation, given that we saw a summit meeting earlier this week of Canadian premiers, notably Ontario Premier Doug Ford and uh, Maritime Premiers in Eastern Canada, about the healthcare crisis in the country. And there was a lot of talk about increasing private health care options at this summit meeting. I want to play a clip here for you and get you, both of you to react to it. 
You're going to hear Ontario Premier Doug Ford here and also New Brunswick Premier Blaine Higgs earlier this week. Have a listen. Doing the, the same over and over again, throwing billions and billions of dollars at a solution uh, and, and keeping the status quo is just not working. Across this country, we have a healthcare system in crisis. So for me, you know, all options are on the table. All options are on the table. Andrew Longhurst, what did you think about, the, you know, we, there's a lot of talk here about a private health care option in the country. Why do you think that would be a bad thing? Well, it's important, and I'm glad Dr. Day mentioned it. At the B.C. Supreme Court level, um, the uh, plaintiff's claims around really uh, unraveling the legislative framework that establishes public health care in B.C., um, that was uh, re- rejected from at the B.C. Supreme Court level, and the claims were also dismissed most recently at the B.C. Court of Appeal. And the facts as they are, and uh, the B.C. Court of Appeal didn't disagree with the evidentiary basis at the Supreme Court level. And Justice Steves at, that, at the trial level said, quote, the introduction of duplicative private health care would increase demand for public care, reduce the capacity of the public system to offer medical care, increase the public system's costs, create perverse incentives for physicians, increase the risk of ethical lapses related to conflicts between the private and public practices of physicians, undermine political support for the public system, and exacerbate inequity in access to medically necessary care. So out of this nearly decade-long litigation, um, the claims that were put forward from the plaintiffs and the arguments that we've heard from Dr. Day simply did not stand, and they were dismissed at both the B.C. Supreme Court level and, most recently, the B.C. Court of Appeal, and that was based on tens of tens of expert witnesses who have been engaged in empirical research in academic institutions saying that duplicative private health care is not going to reduce wait times in the public sector. Okay, well, let's get Dr. Day's response to that. Brian Day, go ahead. Well, he's ab- Andrew's absolutely wrong uh, because actually the BC Appeal Court um, overturned um, the Section 7 uh, discussions, uh, decisions of the trial court judge, and he made many, many errors that will come out when we go to the Supreme Court of Canada. The, um, they, the appeal court actually said they were constrained by the findings of fact of the judge, um, and many of those findings of fact were legal errors uh, and factual errors. The, the fact is, um, Andrew mentions equity, in the Commonwealth Fund Kaihai study of 10 countries, developed countries that have universal health care, Canada is last in equity. We are the only country on the planet where it's unlawful for a citizen who is on a wait list to access um, private health care in their own province. And, and uh, the, the, the statistics are clear and the evidence is clear that we are an underperforming country at 12, we're now over, over, well over 12.5% of our GDP on healthcare. And as I said, Justice Fenland said that the system is purposely underdesigned to, to, in order to achieve fiscal sustainability. And everything Andrew says in his report has been tried for 30 years or so. So, um, you know, I would say his, 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 um, his, the Center for Policy Alternatives is actually. They don't want any alternatives. We've got to look. If you were the 10th-ranked hockey team or soccer team in, the, in a league, you would be looking at what the top two or three do, not, not, not just be content okay. with doing more and more of the same. Andrew Longhurst, what do you say to that? 
Well, I think when we look at a number of the comparisons that Dr. Diaz brought forward, and I'm glad he did, we actually see um, the opposite. We see greater public sector investment in healthcare. And so when we look at the OECD, uh, the European health systems that are often um, mentioned, for example, we see in France, 83% of, of healthcare financing is public. In Germany, 84%. In the Netherlands, 82%. Um, and in, in Canada, it's at, thir- it's at 70%. And we have some, one of the largest shares of private financing of healthcare services in this country. And so when we look at those countries, we actually see much greater investment in things like primary and community care for seniors, which is a really key strategy to reducing wait times in our public system. And this has a really important role in reducing surgical wait times in particular, because we know that too many seniors are in hospital and can't be discharged. And this creates a backlog because we can't then schedule right. enough surgeries in the public system. Okay, Brian, a, a brief response here, please, and then we'll fit a break in here as we must do. Go ahead. Uh, well, um, again, he's ref- Andrew's referring to uh, not referring to hospital and physician services, where in Canada it's 99% public, a public monopoly. Um, and uh, that is, uh, you know, that's just a fact. So, so he's trying to distort the, the, the reality with with manipulated data, which which is, you know, which is his job uh, uh, as as a, a, sp- a spokesperson for his association, which is a union funded um, association in Canada. Welcome back to the show as we continue our private health care debate with my guest today, Dr. Brian Day, past president, Canadian Medical Association, Andrew Longhurst, Canadian Center for Policy Alternatives. Tons of phone calls here. Frank in Vancouver. Hi, Frank. Go ahead. Hi. Hi. Um, I just have a quick question. I don't know if I'm unclear on it. I think this would be for Dr. Day. In the private system that for Canada, which you know I am for, would it cost the taxpayer even one cent? And if it doesn't, then I don't understand what the problem is. Okay, Dr. Day, go ahead. Well, absolutely not. Uh, it wouldn't cost. Uh, there is no clinic in BC that is billing the public system and, the, and, and charging patients privately. So, so what, what, uh, what our constitutional trial is about is allowing for Canadians access to private health insurance, just like you have for dentistry and and drugs um, that every other country in the world allows. It's unlawful in Canada. It's the only country where it's unlawful. And uh, that's, that's all we're asking for. Every other highly performing health system has, has legal access to private funding right. for health care. Andrew Longhurst, what is wrong with that? Well, actually, in, in BC and uh, like other provinces where the legislation is very similar, there's nothing preventing surgeons and physicians from working entirely private practice. They just can't build the public system at the same time. So I think there is a mischaracterization of what, uh, what is able to be done uh, for physicians and surgeons. Um, but the bottom line is it's not, it's not remunerative or profitable enough, especially for private clinics, to be operating by just doing um, pri- entirely private payments. And so that's why we've had the longstanding issue in B.C., of uh, ex- unlawful extra billing in contravention of the Canada Health Act and our provincial legislation. Uh, so I think the issue here is uh, ensuring that we can make the right investments in our public system. And, and just to an earlier comment right. that Dr. Day made, 
When we look at per capita hospital spending, Canada is actually at the bottom of the pack of OECD countries on the public side. And so I think it's really important to keep in mind that this is also an issue of public revenue. And in Canada versus a lot of these European countries, they have much higher rates of taxation, especially on high income earners. So take the example of Canada, where since 1980, uh, corporate, the corporate tax rate has been cut 15, uh, to 15% from 36%. Uh, so this is hollowing out our capacity to make the investment so care is available to everyone and also do so in an equitable way. So that's a really key point here is maintaining equity and access, which is not going to be delivered when, uh, when private financing is introduced. Let's squeeze in one. Go go ahead, Dr. Day. Go ahead. Yeah, go ahead. uh, There is no ability to opt out, to de-enroll and and practice privately in in specialties where the cost of surgery would be, you know, tens of thousands of dollars because private insurance is unlawful in Canada, the only country in the world that that happens. And, And to say that all we need to do is tax people more, that's what's been happening for the last 30 years. The, the, you know, as Peter Hogg, the late Peter Hogg said, a constitutional expert, when a government assumes a monopoly power over the provision of health services, it's constitutionally required that they provide it in a timely manner, and they're not doing that. The appeal court in BC has said Canadians are dying on, on wait lists, and we know that 11,500 patients a, a year die on wait lists right. in Canada with no yeah. choice to get, up, get off it. It's illegal for them to get access share independently with their own funds. Gentlemen, I wish we had more time. We, sadly, we only have a minute left, so let me give you 30 seconds each to sum up, and uh, we'll go first to uh, Andrew Longhurst. Go ahead, Andrew. you got 30 seconds here. Yeah, I think it's really important to keep in mind that we've seen on both private healthcare delivery and for-profit healthcare financing that we see a hollowing out of our public system, and that in large part has to do with the shift of our healthcare professionals from um, the public system to a for-profit one, and that complicates and challenges our ability to deliver and improve and strengthen care in the public system, and that's where the improvements need to be made. Brian Day, go ahead, 30 seconds. Absolutely. We are last in the Commonwealth Fund Canadian Institute for Health Information data of last 10th out of 10 in access, in quality of care, in, and, and even more so, we are the worst for access for low-income groups in Canada, and that's, that has to be fixed. And it's not the case in Switzerland and Germany and Holland and, and other social democracies. All right. Let's talk about student debt forgiveness now. Lots of students in Canada take out loans to pay for their education. In fact, most Canadian students need a loan to pay for tuition, books, housing while they complete their studies. One recent study said total student debt in Canada stands at around $18 billion. That's a lot of debt. Now check out what they're doing in the United States now. Yesterday, U.S. President Joe Biden announced long-awaited student debt forgiveness. Have a listen. We will forgive $10,000 and outstanding federal student loans. In addition, students who come from low-income families, which allowed them to qualify to receive a Pell Grant, will have their debt reduced 
$20,000. Wow, imagine that. Imagine getting a, a call from the government, $20,000 in debt has just been written off and forgiven. For millions of students in the United States, this will wipe out their student debt completely. Now, it is a means-tested program for super for high-income families. They would not qualify in many cases, but millions of students in the United States now would be eligible for student debt forgiveness. So here's the question. Should we do the same thing here? Do it in Canada. Do it in British Columbia. Let's discuss it now with my guest, Tashia Kutaneu. Tashia is the Secretary Treasurer of the BC Federation of Students. And I'm very pleased to welcome Tashia to the show. Thank you very much for coming on today. Thank you so much for inviting us to this conversation. Yeah, you bet. What did you think about the announcement in the United States? That has to be exciting for you, I'm sure. It's so exciting because you know that was built on years and years of advocacy in the post-secondary sector in the States. Uh, You know, in Canada, actually, uh, in British Columbia specifically, a few years back, one in two British Columbians supported providing one year of of tuition freeze uh, for free college or trades training as well. Right. What do you think about, should we do the same thing here in British Columbia, do the same thing in Canada? I would say yes. Um, it's one step in the right direction. Um, here at the BC Federation of Students, we're continuously advocating for not just accessible education, but affordable education universally as a right for all. Yeah. And what is what kind of impact does that have for people who finish their studies or they've they're carrying a lot of that debt load. What kind of impact does that have on people? Like, what sort of stories are you hearing? Yeah, for a lot of students, they're having to put themselves in situations and jobs and things that are not necessarily where they want to be. Um, the cost of living and education is not just about tuition. It's also about housing and food and textbooks and those kinds of things. So students incur a lot more than just their student debt along the way. Uh, so students are not being able to really pursue their educational career path necessarily because they're working multiple jobs to, to pay off that loan. Right. Okay, in the United States, this is a red-hot political issue here. The, I think the, the Democrats are hoping that this will result in votes in, in the fall, from, especially from young voters. The Republicans saying that this is unaffordable, it's maybe not fair to people who've already paid off their student debts in the past, but U.S. President Joe Biden making the argument that this is a good thing for the U.S. economy. Have a listen to what he said here, Tashi, and then I'll get your thoughts. Here's Biden yesterday. People can start, finally crawl out from under that mountain of debt to get on top of their rent and their utilities, to finally think about buying a home or starting a family or starting a business. And by the way, when this happens, the whole economy is better off. U.S. President Joe Biden yesterday announcing student debt forgiveness. So he argues this is good for the economy. Do you agree with him? I would agree. Right now, the system, so student loan, student loan debt is inherently a result of deprioritization from our government. The system itself is broken. It's not students who are seeking to better their education, grow their skills in trades, nursing. It's not their fault for seeking out that opportunity. The real cost of education should be discussed. It's about $125,000 to become a doctor, $48,000 to become a teacher. Right now, the system is set up so that kids in in elementary and in secondary school, they're not able to afford their education. And so we need to do something about it. And this is a step in the right direction. Okay. What would you say, Tasha, to people who are listening saying, well, hang on a sec. I, I went through university or college. I racked up a ton of student debt. 
and I paid it off. Now, I, w- I would include myself in that category. When I graduated from university many years ago, I had a ton of debt, and it took a long time to pay it off. Like, I'm talking years of working part-time, working full-time before it was finally paid off. You know, no one came around and said, here's, here's a check to me to pay off your student debt. Like, what would you say to people who, is, is it fair to people who've already paid off their debt to now have someone come along and say, well, okay, that's good. I'm glad you paid your debts off, but everyone else is going to get, we're, we're going to forgive their debt. Is that fair? I would say that there's a lot of questions and debate happening on this topic about fairness. Uh, and I believe that, you know, people have a very valid reason there to hold that and we shouldn't dismiss it. However, I believe that the problem is really that the system itself is inherently unfair. It's set up for you to accumulate all of this debt. Government funding towards public post-secondary education has gone down over 80 uh, percent since the 1980s. So when most of these uh, people went to university to post-secondary A strong and diverse post-secondary sector allows for supporting existing industry, the expansion of training for in-need sectors, as well as the development of new economies in the province. So right now, I would say it's unfair that the current system exists, and it's unfair that our government is not stepping up to the plate as an active stakeholder and a system that they created responsibility for. Um, So I would say that is what's unfair. Speaking of Tasha Kutaneu from the BC Federation of Students, big announcement yesterday south of the border on student debt forgiveness in the United States. Should Canada do the same thing? Now, federal NDP leader Jagmeet Singh has been pressing the federal government of Justin Trudeau on student debt forgiveness. Have a listen to the NDP leader here on with his thoughts on it. Forgiving student debt is an economic driver. It's going to help young people. It's going to provide them with an opportunity. And it's going to do the right thing to support people who need help in this difficult time. Okay. When you talk to students, Tashia, what are you hearing from people in, in, you know, your people in this economy? Are students struggling right now? We got record high inflation. Your thoughts? Yeah, students are, of course, struggling. The cost of living uh, coupled with a negative real wage growth is really impacting our vulnerable communities. And students are inherently fitting in that category. Uh, We're seeing students being able to un not being able to find uh, housing during their education. Uh, We're seeing increase in food insecurity. You know, the average rate for food insecurity for a student is more than that of the average Canadian. Um, To build on what was said there by Jagmeet is like the federal government promised and committed to removing the federal interest on student loans in 2020 under that belief that it would build a better Canada for everyone. So if they believe that, where is the action on that? Uh, that would be a first tangible step uh, that would align itself with student debt forgiveness uh, in principle. Yeah. What do you say to the argument that, okay, like a, a university or college education is expensive. We know that, but it does pay off for you in the end. Like I'm taking a look at some statistics, Canada data right now on the average income for Canadians who have a a college or university degree. And it's not surprising that if you have a degree, you tend to make more money once you get out of, out of school, right? So shouldn't you, isn't that an argument that, okay, yeah, you paid a lot of money for to get your degree, but you're making more money as a result. So you should pay back your debts. I mean, there's two things here. Uh, the province estimates that within the next few years, we'll have about a 10 years, 77% of new jobs will require some form of post-secondary education or training. So that is a fact that we know. However, the cost to even get into this system, you know, a financial aid system should not just be about accumulating a bunch of debt. It should be 
giving an opportunity to people who, without the financial barrier, would be able to pursue post-secondary education. Public post-secondary education was founded on the principle that the government was a stakeholder, the institution was, and we as students are. And right now, we as students are really stepping up to the plate. You know, our fund, our fees make up over 50% of operational revenue budget for an institution on average, and that's not okay. The fault of the government to fund the system that they built is should not fall on students. So, yes, students are being able to get an education. They'll be able to get paid more. However, you know, it does impact students and their ability and agency to finish their education in a timely manner. Um, so I would say that there is a reason that we believe that uh, post-secondary should be affordable and accessible for all. And that is because it will build out a better community for all of us. All right. All right, Tasha, thank you very much for coming on with your thoughts today. I appreciate it. Thank you so much.